Well, we've been looking at the life of Joseph uh, over these last about month or so. And uh, the life of Joseph is really just to teach us really about one thing. There's one great theme that runs through his life. And it's the theme that I introduced a couple weeks ago, this idea of God's providence. As it says at the end of the day, if you don't know familiar with God's, the idea of God's providence, he kind of explains it twice in the last chapter of Genesis. This, this is the theme that comes out through his life. And the theme that comes up through his life is what you intended for evil, speaking speaking specifically to the brothers who killed him. He says, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about this idea of God's providence, that, that, that even the actions of wicked people, God can actually use them in not only our lives, but in his plan, to bring about his purposes. Last week, we, last week, uh, basically, I didn't, wasn't really clear last week, and I understand that it wasn't. But last week, there was one big point, and, and, and I really hit it, really came to me after I preached it. Last week, there was one big point, and the one big point was that the clearer our picture is of God and his ways, the more equipped we are to interpret meaning in what he is doing in our lives. So the clearer our picture is of God and his ways, the more equipped we are to interpret the meaning of what he is doing in our lives. And this is so true when it comes to this idea of providence. Two weeks ago, when we did our first message on the life of Joseph, or maybe it was a second, I don't remember, but we, we talked about this idea of how providence and how an understanding that God's working and his ways allow us to understand and interpret our suffering in a different way. Our suffering in a different way. But today, um, we're going to look at a specific type of suffering. Because, okay, providence will, will set our mind during times of trial, yes. But today we're going to talk about something a little bit different is what do, how does a picture, a clear picture of God and his working impact when I have been hurt by someone and I have been betrayed by someone and I am raging at someone because of what they have done. I want to talk today about how an understanding and trust in God's providence can restrain us from taking vengeance into our own hands, can protect us from being taken advantage of by wicked people, and can allow God's room to work in the lives of ourselves and others. So that's where we're going to go today. But let's, uh, let's just open up a prayer and ask God to open up our hearts to his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we, we pray that as, you, as we look at the story of Joseph and his brothers, we may see, God, how you were at work in their lives. And God, uh, through this word and through your spirit speaking to us today, even how you would challenge us, admonish us, and encourage us to have the same view of you and your ways. Lord Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, so three things that we're going to be looking at today. The first is this, 
a mature understanding of God's providence, a mature view of God's providence, can preserve your composure when everything within you screams payback. I don't know if you've been in those places in your life where someone has hurt you to that degree. If you haven't, I hope that you never will be and that this message you can kind of chill and have a good morning. But some of you know what I'm talking about when everything within you is screaming payback. A mature view of God's providence can preserve your composure. Let's just look here at the beginning. When Jacob learned there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. And notice what Moses does here. He sets us up. He doesn't say ten of Israel's sons or ten of Jacob's sons. He says ten of Joseph's brothers because we know the story. Uh, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brother, for he feared that feared that harm might happen to him. And thus the sons of Israel came among to buy among the others who came, for famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him, their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized him, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them, Where do you come from? He said, and they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dream that he had dreamed about. Just to recap for you, if you haven't been here in the last couple weeks or you're unfamiliar with this story, Joseph, when Joseph was a boy of 17, his brothers grabbed him, stripped him, threw him in a pit while he was screaming to let him out. They, they sat down and ate their lunch over his screams. And they first intended to kill him, but then they settled on selling him into slavery. They sold him into slavery into a faraway land, a land in which he did not know the language or the culture. He had no connections or power. He had no freedom. And he spent the next 13 years of his life, because of his brothers, he spent the next 13 years of his life as a slave and as a prisoner. He had likely given up any hope of seeing his father or his homeland again. And only through the most miraculous of circumstances that we looked at last week, Joseph was raised out of the prison and actually was set in second of command of the entire land of Egypt. And so this has been his life the last 13 years, or at least uh, his life for 13 years. Now there's probably been, now there's been at least seven more years that have, that, it's been 20 years since he's seen his family. And now, after 20 years, his brothers suddenly stand in front of him in a, in a posture of extreme vulnerability, right? Like they stand before and they bow before him because they understand that he is the one that's going to say whether they live or whether they die. They've come to him out of desperation, out of starvation. And they come and they put their necks out in front of him. And it helps us to remember a couple of things as we kind of just are introduced to this chapter. Number one, Joseph, you would understand after 13 years of slavery and imprisonment, Joseph would have the motive to destroy them. 
Joseph would have the power, as second commandment of Egypt, Joseph has the power to say whether they will live, or whether they will die, whether they will get grain to eat, whether they will go back empty-handed, whether they will be immediately executed. He has the opportunity. So he has the motive and the power and the opportunity to immediately take out those 13 years of anger upon them. Now, I, I've been listening to that podcast. Dave Wadley, you uh, recommended this. I think you were the first one recommended to me that. Um, What's that called? The um, Hardcore History Podcast with Dan Carlin, right? And uh, he goes through different times. This guy, Dan Carlin, he likes to study military history of the world type of thing. And uh, one of the themes that comes up again and again and again as he goes through various stages of history is that we live in a very peaceful age. We live in an age where there's relatively, it, it seems like the, the age is growing darker and dimmer, but we live in an age, when, particularly in our culture, where um, violence is, like, like the, the literally like killing of people is not necessarily a part of our everyday life. And we actually have something to be thankful for. But but he goes through different historical epochs in that in that uh, in that uh, podcast, and I think this is the first thing that's so surprising about this passage is in many cultures at many times, particularly in the ancient world, this restraint that Joseph shows in not simply just executing his brothers immediately would have been shocking to the reader. After all his brothers have done to him. And, and for him to have that sort of restraint. So what, what stops Joseph from doing this? How does he maintain his composure and not immediately act to get payback? And that's where we look at verse 9. Verse 9 tells us that Joseph flashes back to when he was 17 years old, before his brothers seized him, and he remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And it's here that I believe that Joseph begins to understand the truth that he gets to at the end of the book. I think it's actually here where he begins to understand that it wasn't his brothers that had sent him to Egypt. It was God. That when he was a young man, God had actually given him these visions where his brothers would come bowing down before him. And when his brothers actually do come and bow down before him, Joseph's immediate impulse might have been payback, but he's able to remember this is something that God has foretold decades ago. That they were actually messages from God telling Joseph of God's plan. And I, I want us to remember too, Joseph's already kind of been dealing with his brothers, hasn't he? Remember, um, Joseph had already committed himself to leaving the past in the past. Right? Uh, last week we looked at when his kids were born. Joseph gave them a couple names. He gave them the, well, his firstborn, he gave the name. Do you remember the name he gave his firstborn? Well, Manasseh. Remember what it meant? Forget. And he, and he said, when he, when he, I forgot. If he, if he said you forgot, you were right. He, uh, he forgot. <laughs> that he named his firstborn forget, and he said, God has made me forget all the sufferings of my father's house. And his secondborn, he named fruitful. And so every time he called his kids their names, it was Joseph reminding himself that because of what God had done in his life, he was able to leave the past in the past. 
And so when his brothers come bowing down before him, and maybe everything in Joseph would have ranged up to like, oh, now here's my chance. I've got the opportunity, I've got the motive, I've got the power to enact payback upon them. He's able to maintain his composure because he's already given this over to God. If there's one test in the book of, in the story of Joseph, there's one test. One test is, will you continue to love and to seek and to follow after God and to trust God in your suffering? But this is a different test. This is a hard test. Are you able to trust God when you have opportunity to pay back your enemy? Are you able to continue to trust God and to seek God and to follow God when you have the power to take it out on your enemy? See, that's a test. That's a test. So a mature view of God's providence preserves our composure when everything in us wants to pay back. Secondly, a mature view of God's providence believes that though God can bring good from the actions of wicked persons, we're not required to entrust ourselves to wicked persons. So again, the overarching theme of Moses telling us of Joseph's story is, is this, that God can take the actions of sinful people and can bring about his purposes and plan through them. Right? That's, that's, that's one of the big themes. It is the big theme of the book of Genesis. What sinful humanity intends for evil, God works for good. Specifically, he tells us in this, in these stories, that humanity's sin and wickedness is not only, is not enough to stop God's plan of deliverance from unfolding, but God actually takes what we do in our, in our rebellion as human beings as the means through which he brings about his salvation. It is such a mind-blowing and worldview-altering, like, understanding of God and his ways. That God actually takes the sinful actions of humanity. And it's not just that they can't stop his plan. It's that God actually uses our sinful actions and God actually turns them about and brings about his purposes through them. The, the greatest ultimate expression of this truth is the death of Jesus Christ. In our sinful rebellion, we tortured and murdered the very Son of God. That is something we did to Him. Yet, His death was the means through which God atoned for the very wickedness of the world and accomplished the redemption of His people. And we have to understand that all these stories of Genesis are just part of that greater story. That it's something that God was doing from the beginning. God was working his good from our bad. And he does that through the cross. He does that no more clearly than through the cross. It's why we call Good Friday good. It's that what we have done in our rebellion, in our wandering, in our rejection of God, God took all of that and he placed it upon himself. And out of that came the means by which we can know him and that we could be in relationship with him once again. And so that's the truth that even these stories in Genesis are proclaiming. However, though God can bring good and does bring good through the actions of wicked persons, 
It does not require us to entrust ourselves to wicked persons. In other words, in, like trusting God does not necessarily mean that we just trust everybody who has kicked us in the face. And Joseph, actually through these chapters, Joseph puts his brothers through tests before he's willing to entrust his identity to them, to reveal himself and who he is to them. He puts his brothers through a bunch of tests. So first he uh, first he repeatedly accuses them. His first test is he just continually, repeatedly accuses them. He actually says three times, oh sorry, oh, go back one. There we go. He says three times in this first part, when he's talking to them, he speaks to them personally, he says, you're spies! And they're like, no, we're not, we're just brothers. He says, you're spies! And they're like, no, we, we've got a dad, we're, we're all brothers, we've got, ten, there's ten of us, but we had another brother and he's no more, we had another brother and he's back with our dad, and Joseph's like, no, you're spies! You're here to see the nakedness of the land, and that's an idiom for, basically, you're here to scope out our defenses. And he keeps on calling them spies and spies and spies. And he breaks them down. He breaks them down a bit. It, it, it gets them to admit some important information to Joseph, that their youngest brother, Benjamin, is still alive and back home with their father. And, and then Joseph uses that information against them, basically telling them to prove their story is true by bringing Benjamin back. So he, he repeatedly accuses them, breaking them down, giving them information. Then he uh, he turns up the heat. He turns up the heat, he throws them all. Actually, what, what happens is he um, he first tells them that one of them, he tells them that one of them will remain in prison, and the rest of them, no, no, sorry. He tells them that all of them will remain in prison, and one of them will go to fetch their brother. And he tells them that they are to choose who is going to go free to go get their brother? And can you? I can just imagine, like, uh, think of think of what is going to happen in that group of twelve or a group of ten guys, where where one of them is going to get to go free. I can imagine, you know, he puts them in prison for three days to think about it, and uh, you know, what are the brothers going to do? Are they going to turn on each other? If they're in prison for three days, are they gonna, how are they going to how are they going to stand the strain of imprisonment? Are, are there going to be rivalries that come to the surface as a result of their awareness that only one of them would return to Canaan, and all the other brothers would depend on that one? You kind of want to see it. I'd love to see a director's cut of the story where we where we get to see the brothers' conversations in prison. You know, um, but we don't know. We don't know how much drama was in that cell, because on the third day, Joseph throws them into chaos again. He tells them he's had a change of heart. And instead of them all staying in prison and one brother going free, he tells them, no, 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 I've changed my mind now. So after three days of the brothers deciding, all right, we'll all stay in prison and, and you, you go. After three days, Joseph comes and says, oh, I've changed my mind. I fear God. In fact, all of you guys can go, but one. And suddenly again, it throws them into chaos. How are they going to choose who is going to stay while the others go free? And, and imagine this. Joseph, I believe Joseph knows what he's doing here. Joseph knew his brothers, and he knew them, but he knew them only as, you know, wicked, selfish, violent, self-seeking men. And I'm sure Joseph expected this strain, these tests would tear them 
apart. But something amazing happens here. The brothers don't cry. They don't, they don't attack or accuse each other. In fact, for the first time, they collectively confess their sin. And there's, they said to one another, verse 21, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brothers in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. In the Hebrew, the we in each one of those statements is emphatic. We ourselves, each phrase starts with, you know, Joseph's trying to divide the brothers in one person can go, or all people can go, one person stays, trying to divide the brothers and through this, the brothers actually, this is the first time actually in the book of Genesis where, where there is confession of sin. He says, we, and this is collective, we have sinned against our brothers. We all heard him. And we did not listen. And that is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you didn't listen? Now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Reuben's point in verse 22 is not to say, I told you so, I'm innocent and you're all guilty, but to recognize that there's justice in Joseph's requirement that one brother stay behind since they've taken the life of one brother. Joseph is so emotionally moved by this confession of his brothers. Now, the brothers don't know that Joseph can understand them, that he turns away from them and he weeps. But he still puts them through one more test. He, he heightens the consequences. He returns to them and speaks to them. And he takes Simeon from them and binds them, binds them before their eyes. And Joseph gives order to fill their bags of grain and replace every man's money in his sack. And he gives them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. And so they load up the donkey with their grain and departed. As one of them opened the sack to get his donkey potter at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? Now what is Joseph doing by putting the money back in, in, in their sacks? Well, it does one thing. It points to the reality that if the brothers are going to actually do the honorable thing and go back home and bring back Benjamin and bring him back with them, it basically heightens the consequences. Because now they know that if they go back to Egypt, they actually are not only going to be charged as spies, possibly and potentially, but they're also going to be charged as thieves. That they've stolen this money. And the brothers know this, and they say their hearts run within them, and they tremble toward each other, saying, Oh my goodness, what is happening to us? It is going to be costly for them to do the right thing. To be honest, that's one of the greatest tests of repentance that I know of. I don't know if this has happened to you, but when there has been possibly someone has hurt you, or someone has offended you, uh, someone's betrayed you, and you're testing to see whether or not they've come to you and they've said they are sorry, and you, you're testing to find out whether or not you can trust them again. And you know that, possibly if this person has done this to you time and time again, you know that their words are not mean, they don't mean much. 
And so one of the things about this is just, just seeing how it's going to be costly for his, for, for his brothers to come and demonstrate that they actually have repented. That they've actually changed. It's going to cost something. And that's what these tests by Joseph are designed to do. Joseph's, Joseph's already learned to trust God. He's already learned to trust God's providence. He already knows that God can bring good from evil. He's already named his sons forget and fruitfulness. Yeah, this doesn't require him to trust his brothers without testing their repentance. And it brings us to the final point. A mature view of God's providence allows time for God to work in the lives of others. When you can keep your composure and not immediately, you know, seek payback to those who hurt you, and when you don't entrust yourself to wicked people but take time to test and evaluate the character of repentance, you, you allow time for God to work in the lives of others so that God might work good in and through them as well. And the brothers so the brothers return home, and they have to explain to their father what's happened to Simeon. And they explain to him, they explain to him they can't get Simeon back unless they return with Benjamin. But then it says, as they were opening their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they saw, that when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this is come against me. And Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I don't bring them back to you. Put them in my hands. And I will bring them back to you. But he, being Jacob or Israel, said, My son won't go down with you, for his brother is dead. He's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey you're about to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to show so, so get what happens here. This is the first time that Jacob gives an indication that maybe he doesn't know exactly what happened to Joseph, but he knows it had something to do with his brothers. Right? He says, you have bereaved me of my son Joseph. So I don't know if Jacob knows what's happened to, to Joseph, but he understands that he sent Benjamin out, or sorry, he sent Joseph out to get his brothers, and the brothers came back without, and, and Joseph was dead. Right? It would be like, um, somebody I was talking to said uh, this week, it'd be like, I've got three kids. It'd be like, sorry, Iko and Caden, I'm going to use you guys. It'd be like if I gave Iko and Caden like a thousand dollars, and I said, alright guys, I want you guys to walk down to Best Buy and buy us a new TV. And then Iko comes home with the TV with the thousand dollars and no Canaan. Now I might, I might not initially, I might not, you know, I might not have any evidence to make a formal accusation of Ico. But if she came up next week and said, "Hey, we need a new computer. Can you give me a thousand dollars and no Amy?" I don't think I'd let no Amy go with her. I think I'd be like, "No, you're not going to fool me again." And, uh, Looks a bit suspicious. And so Jacob actually says, listen, I have sent my sons with you. Joseph never came back. Simeon never came back. You're not taking Benjamin with you. 
And then Reuben steps up, and the thing is, Reuben does seem to be sincere. After all, he wanted to return Joseph to his father in his first place before the brothers sold him into slavery. But Jacob's not ready to trust his sons again by placing Benjamin in their hands. And that brings us to chapter 43. As their food is diminishing and their situation becomes desperate, a really surprising thing happens. And if you've been following along and reading along the story in Genesis, a really surprising thing happens. There's another brother who steps up and takes the responsibility for taking Benjamin to Egypt and delivering him safely back to his father. And the shocking thing is this brother is Judah. Right? Judah pledges his life. Judah says to him, like, we can't go back without Benjamin. The man solemnly warned us, saying, you won't see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send your brother with us, we'll go down and buy you food. But if you won't send him, we won't go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And at that point, Jacob says, no, don't, you're not taking Benjamin. And here it is in verse 8. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me. We will rise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and our little ones. Verse 9, Judah says, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And the reason why this is so surprising is that in this story that Moses is giving us of the life of Joseph and, the, and, and, and these sons, Judah has been the, the one brother that has been focused on, particularly as being a horrific sinner. I mean, all the brothers seized Joseph and, and threw him into the pit and, and were planning to murder him. But it was Judah who said, well, we might as well profit off of him as well. Let's sell him into slavery. It's not enough to just murder him and get rid of him. We should make a profit off of this. And then Moses actually intervened, and like he, he interrupts his story of what happened with Joseph by giving us a whole chapter, a whole chapter demonstrating Judah's character through decades. Right from the time that he goes apart and he goes and he walks a different route than his brothers, and he turns aside from his brothers and goes and seeks the Canaanite wife to the decades that he was lying to his daughter-in-law as his sons were growing up. I mean, this is character portrait over decades of Judah. To the point where uh, his daughter-in-law is so desperate that she tricks him in his wickedness, tricks him, and then humiliates him. And that chapter ends with Judah acknowledging his unrighteousness, his wickedness. And I don't know yet if that episode with Tamar, his daughter-in-law, is directly tied to a change of heart in Judah's life or a change of character. I mean, it could be because I know from the entire Bible's portrait of what salvation is, is we only truly come to know God and to know his salvation when we acknowledge and understand the wickedness of our heart. I don't know because Moses doesn't clearly tell us this, if, if those two things are related here in Judah's life. What I do know is that Judah had acknowledged his wickedness, and a few chapters later, we actually see a change of character in Judah. 
But I will, I will note that it is shocking that Judah steps up here. And without spoiling the rest of the story for you, I'll just say that in the coming chapters we see that God is not done working in Judah's life. And, and Judah's father Israel actually sees here that God isn't done. And, and Judah's his father himself, his father also sees that he's got no other choice but to trust. Father Israel said to them, it must be so then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land to be beg, carry a present for the man. Take also another verse 13 and go arise to the man. And here it is, verse 14. May God Almighty grant me mercy before the man. And may he send you back your other brother and Benjamin. Ask for me if I am bereaved of my children. I am bereaved. Jacob is willing and at least willing to trust God's direction in his life at this point. And so the men took his present, they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. There's a patience, and there's a hope that a trust in God's providence instills in us. I'm going to put this negatively first. If you do not believe in a God, and if you do not believe in a God who is in control of all things, if you do not believe in a God that can actually use the wicked things that people do in order to bring about his plan and his good, if you don't believe in a God like that, when you are betrayed and when you are hurt, I can imagine that you can see there's no other way forward than to lash out and to pay back. Only by knowing this God who is in control of all of life's situations will you be able to find a composure and a peace that will allow you not to seek immediate payback. Only through knowing that God where you trust God, where you know God, where you know His plan is greater, only through knowing a God like that will you be able to keep your composure when everything in you wants payback. And though now we recognize that God can bring good through the actions of wicked people, we're not required to entrust ourselves to them. But only also knowing that God, we actually pray. We actually pray that God, I, I trust you with this. As the New Testament says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And knowing that God allows you to, to pray for and even to bless those who have hurt you. To pray for and to bless those who have persecuted you. To pray for and to bless your enemies. If you don't know a God like that, I do not see how you can do it. But knowing a God like that, we trust and we pray and we wait and we hope that God will in his time work in them as well. And I would just close this message by just asking you, who's hurt you? Who's hurt you? How are you trusting God in that hurt? How are you preparing your heart when you might meet them again. 
Are you readying yourself for payback? One of my favorite books is The Count of Monte Cristo. It's a great book. But that entire book is this guy who's just, his life is consumed with payback. Is that your life? Or are you giving the hurt over to God and allowing Him time to work in the hearts of those who have hurt you? Are you are you praying for those who have hurt you? Are you repaying them blessing for cursing? And you might say, I can't, I can't do that. I can't. But God can. And He can do it in you as you fix your eyes on Him and on His others. Heavenly Father, I, I, I pray for those in here and for 